and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hello, I'm Jason Isaacson, AJC's Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer. This year, Israel established formal ties with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco, three Arab countries that AJC has been engaging at the highest levels for decades in order to advance understanding, cooperation, and true peace in the Middle East. What once seemed impossible is becoming real before our eyes. Whether we're privately meeting with world leaders or publicly mobilizing our two and a half million social media followers, AJC's goal is the same, to drive change, prompt action, and shape policies that make this a safer world for the Jewish people and for all people. I hope you'll support AJC before the end of the year. If you give to AJC now through December 31st, a generous donor has offered to double your contribution up to $350,000. To support AJC today, please visit ajc.org slash donate. Thank you. In 2015, former Bulgarian Minister of Defense and Foreign Minister Nikolai Mladenov was appointed by then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to serve as the UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process. Since then, Nikolai has served with distinction, doggedly working to stave off conflict escalations, to speak up against Hamas terror, and to speak up for Palestinian needs. Nikolai will soon be leaving this post, and he has graciously agreed to join us now on People of the Pod to share his thoughts before he does. Nikolai, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you and I recorded a podcast interview two and a half years ago at the AJC Global Forum 2018 in Jerusalem. Your very first answer began, and I quote, Right now, there is practically no peace process because there are no talks. We're very far from the conditions which would make such talks meaningful. And to add an additional complication to that, the Palestinians and the Americans don't talk to each other. Unless I'm mistaken, you could answer this first question in a similar way today. What are the prospects right now for Israeli-Palestinian peace? Well, if I had to edit my answer two years later, I would delete the word practically. Everything else stands because there is no peace process. I don't think either the Palestinian or the Israeli side are in a position to initiate meaningful discussions on issues that would actually lead to a sustainable solution to the conflict. Of course, the Palestinian side is now hopeful that with a new American administration coming in, this will change. I would argue that what is important are the conditions on the ground. Firstly, leadership on both sides, for their own reasons, different reasons, but for their own reasons, is not in a position to initiate such discussions. Secondly, I think the region has shifted in a different direction with different threats that the region has identified as more of a priority. And thirdly, I think it demands a very serious effort by the international community to create the conditions that are necessary to sustain such meaningful negotiations. Mm -hmm. What I would argue is that right now, both sides need to do unilaterally some positive confidence-building measures so that some of the trust that is necessary for negotiations to be meaningful can be rebuilt. And there is a lot of stuff that can be done by both the Israelis and the Palestinians to that end. 
when last we spoke, you also said that the situation in Gaza, to which I know you've paid a tremendous amount of attention and invested a tremendous amount of time, you said that that situation was extremely desperate. Has life improved at all for the people living in Gaza? I don't think I can say that it has improved. I think it's actually, on a number of fronts, become much worse with the COVID pandemic now. In fact, only a couple of weeks ago, we came out with some new research, which we published, and tens of thousands of Gazans have lost their jobs because of the economic and the socioeconomic crisis caused by the virus pandemic. We've seen a rapid increase in the number of people who need food assistance and a healthcare system in Gaza, which is on the verge of collapse. It is only managing to deal with the cases that now, the coronavirus cases that it has, because of the extensive assistance that the UN, in coordination with Israel and with the Palestinians, provides to hospitals, be that ventilators, face masks, test kits, whatever is necessary. But no, life there hasn't improved. And the only way that you can see life in Gaza improving is if you have a combination of the following factors. One is the legitimate Palestinian authority. Government comes back in, takes control from Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and all the various militants that are there so that they put their weapons under their control and reduce the risk, the security risk on the ground. Secondly, that Israel reopens some of the closings on Gaza in terms of the limitations, what can go in because of the fear that dual-use materials that go into Gaza get used for rockets or other terror-related activity. And that is how life can normalize. But sadly, we're more in a state right now of preventing war than actually trying to build a sustainable peace as far as Gaza is concerned. There have been many attempts to restart internal Palestinian negotiations. All of them sadly have failed. The title of the job that you are preparing to leave is special coordinator for the Middle East peace process. I know that often Middle East peace process refers just to this kind of one long-running conflict in one corner of the Middle East. So does your remit, Nikolai, does it touch on any of this kind of new news between Israel and Arab states? My job title was invented. I don't think there was any, there were any other conflicts in the Middle East. And this was the go-to conflict for everyone. Since then, there have been too many. And I wish there would be a general Middle East peace process, if you wish, that involves all the countries in the region, from Libya to Yemen to Iraq and Lebanon and Syria and whatever else you have. My remit currently is on the Israeli-Palestinian front only. However, I think that if you look more strategically how to resolve this really frozen conflict, if you wish, between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you do need to bring the Arabs in. And this is something that we've been arguing for way back before, even during President Obama's time, that the quartet, the international quartet, needs to open up and engage with the Arabs more openly and more constructively. And perhaps in the future, that will be more possible because of the Abraham Accords and the situation which you have now. I've been a strong advocate of bringing in the Arab countries because I think in the current strategic and geopolitical environment, they bring benefits to all sides and to the region as a whole. They are key to stability and to promoting tolerance in the Middle East. They are critical to creating economic opportunities of engagement between Israel and the Gulf states, trade, uh, tourism, cultural, educational exchanges. They're critical, if you wish, to supporting the Palestinian Authority in terms of funding and donations, the UN's activities on the coronavirus, on any other crisis that we have. So they are strategic partners. 
And throughout my term here, I've spent a substantial part of my time traveling to the Gulf, to Egypt, to Jordan, to other Arab countries, constantly briefing them, consulting with them and bringing them in. Just a few months ago, when the annexation was still an issue of public debate in Israel, I made it very clear publicly that Israel has a choice, either to go down the road of annexation, which would have been against international law, would have created all kinds of security and other problems on the ground, and would have alienated the Arab countries, or go down the road of normalization, which actually creates opportunities for the future. And I'm really glad that that's where we are today. Christmas season is approaching. So what's on your wish list from the Biden administration? What are the you know two or three things that you would love to see them do in this area just as soon as they're in the White House? I never connected the Biden administration to Christmas. But if I think about the coming months, I would say that it's really important to restore Palestinian-American dialogue, certainly to be much more active within the quartet format and open up the quartet to the Arab countries. I would say that the U.S. needs to stay engaged also in the situation in Gaza, because in the past there were some, this is prior to the Trump administration, there was a general belief that if you get the Israelis and the Palestinians sitting at the table, somehow Gaza will fix itself and the PA will go and take control from Hamas. No, these things don't happen magically. It's a very complicated issue to untangle. But really keeping up the pressure on Palestinian unity and keeping up the pressure, as I said earlier, on the Israeli side. Israel has achieved a major success with the normalization agreements. Now it is time to also look closer to home and see what Israel needs to do in order to protect the prospect for peace and a negotiated solution to the Palestinian conflict. You're staying away from any kind of specific reopen this mission or that embassy or this aid or you don't want to get into that or i don't want to get into that because you know the new administration hasn't come in it needs to assess what is possible what is feasible and i spend most of my life in politics before getting into this i know how things can quickly change and how many things you can't actually predict you think that from today's perspective something is going to be important in six months and other things push off the agenda Nikolai, your time in this role is drawing to a close. I've seen it reported in at least one source that you'll be heading up the UN mission in Libya. So you're clearly only interested in those easy, simple postings like peace in the Middle East and countries torn apart by civil war. As you look back on almost six years in this role, what stands out to you as an accomplishment and what's one challenge that you know your successor will have to grapple with? Just for the record, I'm still very much in Jerusalem, even as we record this podcast. I suppose my biggest regret is that two biggest regrets, if I may, or three perhaps, that we were never able to really move the Israeli and the Palestinian position to a point at which meaningful negotiations can happen. I remember the first time I used this word meaningful in the context of negotiations, a colleague of mine in the UN looked at me and said, why are you changing? You're introducing new language. What does meaningful mean? And I said, well, meaningful mean exactly what it means. It means meaningful, that it's not just negotiations for the sake of negotiations, but that they actually carry a meaningful process with an outcome for both sides. The second thing I regret, I think, is that we were never able to fully, that we still very much work in silos in a way. There's the silo of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's the silo of the situation in Lebanon and Iraq and Syria, a little bit more connected. I think it's important for everyone not just for the UN, to 
look at the global picture, the regional picture, and try and connect the dots of what is happening. We may have done a little bit of that in the situation in Gaza, and I'll speak to that in a minute. Perhaps what we've been successful is not so much the peace process part, because certainly that hasn't gotten us anywhere in the last five or six years. We've managed to keep the peace. And ultimately, I think the fact that the UN, together with Egypt, Qatar, and others, has been able to prevent another war in Gaza has some importance. Two years ago, probably around the same time as now, two years ago, many people thought that war was inevitable. And it took a lot of efforts on our side to prevent it. And I hope that in the future, our mission continues to play that role. Well, Nikolai, I know that you've worked closely with several of my colleagues. I'll just say for my part, when things threaten to flare up between Israelis and Palestinians, and I've seen your name in the news, I've always felt relief that someone is working hard to dial down the temperature. So let me thank you for that and say on behalf of AJC, thank you so much for all your hard work over these years. And thank you again for coming and joining us today on People of the Pod. And thank you for having me. And thanks to all friends at the AJC, the leadership and the members. They've been some of our most vocal supporters and have been really great advocates for peace. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Sefi is taking a snow day, so the only one joining me at the Shabbat table this week is Rabbi Noam Marins, AJC's Director of Interreligious and Intergroup Relations. Noam, when you're gathered with your friends and family at the Shabbat table this weekend, what will you be talking about? Thank you, Manya. Throughout my life, the Friday night Shabbat table was and is the place where we linger for hours to catch up with each other and debate our happy place. Hanukkah will end just as Shabbat is beginning, and the Shabbat candles will be our new lights of hope to pierce the darkness of a pandemic and a divided America. Even as we brace ourselves for the dark winter of COVID's second wave, we will celebrate the beginning of vaccinations that promise to turn the tide of this deadly scourge. We have many members of our immediate family who are frontline health professionals and reports and photos of them receiving their inoculations are beginning to pour in. Can relief for our elderly parents and grandparents be far behind? Can we imagine hugging them at the Passover Seder table? Is the light at the end of this tunnel of sadness beginning to shine? There will be thanksgiving and cautious optimism at this week's Shabbat table. And we will surely not resist the temptation to debate the contentious state of America. There too, the possibility of healing has begun. It'll be a slow process. It will need to extend well beyond the peaceful transition of power. The wounds are deep, the chasms are vast, and it will take millions extending their hands across the divides to make us whole. How appropriate that our annual Torah reading cycle is now focused on the long narrative of Joseph and his brothers. It began last week with the brothers leaving the bratty Joseph to die in a pit. By next Shabbat, 
the left for dead Joseph will reveal himself to his brothers as the viceroy of Egypt with the immortal words, I am your brother Joseph. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is the possibility of reconciliation after estrangement, of health after illness. So much to discuss. Shabbat shalom to all. Thank you so much, Noam. I am so happy your family is getting that vaccine. Hugs sound absolutely wonderful. (laughs) At our Shabbat table, my family will be discussing a very similar subject. Listen to this. Any idea what that sound is? Sounds like a failed dreidel spin. (laughs) You guessed it. We will be discussing and probably still trying to spin dreidels. (laughs) As we wrapped up Hanukkah, indeed, this week with a final flood of presents, my kids and I finally broke out the dreidel. A dreidel is something we missed this Hanukkah. We lit the menorah. We read stories with friends on Zoom. We delivered jelly donuts and goodie bags full of gelt. And I sent the kids to school with dreidels in their lunchboxes. But the coronavirus restrictions prevented them from challenging anyone to a dreidel duel. And that made me, well, it made me sad. And there's something about that four-sided top inscribed with the abbreviations for A Miracle Happened there. It draws kids in. It appeals to their sense of competition. It makes them want to know more. In 2004, I ventured to Indiana University in Bloomington to watch precisely 541 people try to earn a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for twirling the most dreidels simultaneously. It was one of my more memorable Hanukkah stories on the religion beat. And while they had the numbers to beat the record, I don't know if they actually achieved the feat. If they did, it didn't last. According to Guinness, the United Synagogue Youth have held the record since 2011. 734 dreidels spinning at the same time for 10 seconds. Now, as you could tell from that really lame dreidel spin I just demonstrated, I mean, Noam, have you ever spun a dreidel for 10 seconds? I have a lot of experience in this area. When I was a congregational rabbi, we had dreidel spinning contests among the Hebrew school students. Who could spin their dreidel longest? You had to watch out for those kids who started late without anyone noticing so they could last longer. It's like those late starting chauffeur blowers. Well, 10 seconds, that alone seems like a miracle to me. But in all seriousness, there are a lot of miracles to celebrate this season, not least of which, as you mentioned, the vaccine, which is now available to our healthcare workers and those most vulnerable to the virus. You know, when I was in Bloomington 16 years ago, a remarkably wise college freshman told me that the dreidel teaches us a lot about life. Sometimes things get taken away. Sometimes you win. You can't plan where the dreidel is going to land. No, there are no guarantees in life, but I am incredibly hopeful that by next year's Hanukkah, 735 people can gather safely in one room and try to spin a new world record. I am hopeful that any number of people can gather to light a menorah and celebrate, and I'm hopeful that my kids can pull those dreidels out of their lunchboxes to challenge their friends to a dreidel duel, and we can all say together in 2021 that a miracle happened there. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. 
You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.